Okay, welcome to the Environmental Justice Report. This is uh, Janine Moloff, the producer and your host. Well, a lot going on this week, so we're just going to get right into it. This week, I'm going to talk about, surprise, surprise, how corporations and the billionaire class muzzle dissent by criminalizing constitutionally protected activity. Now, this isn't a new topic. We've talked about this before. And here at EJR, we've talked about the role that corporations or corporate persons, if you will, continually game the system so they ensure a constant flow of unearned profits while cutting off any levels of reasonable transparency and subsequent accountability. You can't have accountability if you don't have transparency first. You don't know what's going on, you can't hold people accountable. It's that simple. So a few weeks ago, I covered the slimy influence of the slap suit with Maggie Herchala. Now, slap is a type of civil lawsuit, and it's an acronym for, get this, Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. They're specifically designed to pose as an ongoing threat to anyone daring to question the billionaire or corporate power. That's it. And so to quote um, a source about slap suits, quote, a strategic lawsuit against public participation is a lawsuit intended to censor, intimidate, and silence critics by burdening them with the cost of a legal defense until they abandon their criticism or opposition. In the typical slap, slap, the plaintiff, that means you, okay, the plaintiff does not normally expect to win the lawsuit. So the corporate entity that slaps some good, well-meaning person, that corporation pretty much knows that they can't win the case on the actual facts. They're just waiting out the clock until you go broke. That's, what, that's how they silence dissent. Now, that, that's the civil side of the law. Now, it would be bad enough if that were the only thing we had to contend with, but it's not. Today, we're going to speak, and we've talked about this a few other times, about the increased and illegitimate criminalization of constitutionally protected dissent. So here in the U.S., I'm going to focus on how this criminalization has targeted the very intersectional nature of environmental justice, racial justice, and the demand for accountability and transparency. It's no secret that the billionaire class controls everything, including the courts, with impunity. Now, in more recent years, this same billionaire class and their armies of corporate attorneys push what can only be called out as illegitimate laws that criminalize constitutionally protected dissent. So let's get into it. Now, the first set of documents was uh, based on a study from a think tank called the Institute for Policy Studies. And this first little overview was written by Bob Alvarez, who we are familiar with in my hometown of St. Louis because he helped uh, point out a study and conduct a study that um, dealt with the Westlake situation. So Bob Alvarez, good people. So the Institute for Pop Policy Studies, and this is by Bob Alvarez, in just this past October 2020, the headline is, Alarming New Report Exposes Dangerous Link Between Fossil-Fueled Politicians and Anti-Protest Laws. Uh, the subtitle is Muzzling Dissent Exposes the Money Trail Linking Corporate Lobbyists, Elected Officials, and Anti-Protest Laws. Now, I can picture people's eyes, you know, people doing the eye roll. Well, of course, politicians are selling their influence. 
and we think that there's nothing we can do about it except it's already illegal. It's called graft. We just don't enforce it anymore, and we need to. Otherwise, basically, we've allowed criminals to run everything. The only difference is the cut of their suit. Instead of wearing orange, they wear Brooks Brothers. So let's look at this. So Bob Alvarez put this out, and it says here, the Climate Justice Project at the Institute for Policy Studies put out this new report, and it exposes what they call a troubling link. I call it a damning link between new laws that criminalize peaceable protesters and the fossil fuel industry's deep influence over elected officials. Let's call it as deep pockets. When you're talking about the money trail, you're talking about buying and selling of influence. It is illegal. It has always been illegal, but they get away with it. When politicians accept some sort of monetary or power um, gift from another entity, that's bribery. When they put it, when a politician puts it out there that they might be able to kill a bill that some corporation doesn't like for certain favors, shall we say, that's extortion. And there's a book uh, put out that details that, and both parties do it. But let's get into it. And the reason we're talking about the fossil fuel industry and environmental um, justice is because this is the environmental justice report. But you almost can't separate racial justice and other forms of justice from environmental justice. This is truly intersectional. And it ties in with police abuse and the militarization of police. It all comes together. So let's get into it. So this report, Muzzling Dissent, How Corporate, Corporate Influence Over Politics Has Fueled Anti-Protest Laws, it was created by, it was authored by Basav Sen and Gabrielle Colchette. And again, it looks at this new, not so new, but a new pattern of anti-protest laws that specifically restrict or infringe upon constitutionally protected freedoms, such as free speech and free assembly. And what these laws do, uh, according to these people, brazenly, they say, attempt to shield specifically the fossil fuel infrastructure projects from public scrutiny. And we have a right to know what's going on with these fossil fuel projects. We already know that, you know, oil and gas pipelines leak. We know that some of the leaking can permanently contaminate our water supply. We have a right to know. So additionally, they, these authors found that extractive projects um, that these anti-protest laws are trying to protect also, quote, disproportionately harm mar marginalized communities that often lack resources to oppose them, end quote. Well, duh. All right. Of course, this disproportionately harms those low-income communities, communities of color. We live in a racist country. Of course it does. And there's a quote here from uh, one of the authors, Gabrielle Colchette. And Colchette is quoted as saying, quote, as Black Lives Matter and environmental protesters are met with paramilitary police repression and draconian felony charges, state legislatures are also passing, quote, critical infrastructure protection laws that conflate civil disobedience with heinous felony acts, end quote. Now, that's a really important quote. What Colchette is saying, that when you see the intersection of social racial justice groups like Black Lives Matter, work and, and then environmental justice groups as well. 
they're met with mil- what is it, paramilitary police. But what these legislatures are doing is they're putting out laws that turn what could be just ordinary civil disobedience and turning it into a felony, a felony with long jail terms. Now, mind you, these alleged lawmakers aren't held accountable, and they should be, you know, but there's this epidemic, in my opinion, of people that they get into an, a legislature and they think they can pass a law on anything. And the Bill of Rights be damned. They're wrong, but they think they can't. So these authors, they talk about case studies in three states specifically, um, Louisiana, Minnesota, and West Virginia. Now, those are states that have all either introduced um, what are called critical infrastructure protection laws, or they've passed them. And these are very deceptive, and they coincide with oil and gas pipeline construction. And it could be argued these legislatures pass laws which basically are there for only a single purpose, namely to protect a single industry and protect them against any legitimate constitutionally protected dissent or even inquiry. And as far as I'm concerned, this is the danger of state rights claims. When they say state rights, it's just another license to abuse with impunity. So the critical report, it shows linkages. They call it linkages. I think that's so nice. Um, Basically, you know, call it what it is, okay? It's collusion and conspiracy. But they call it linkages between corporate lobbyists and elected officials. Okay, isn't this tiptoeing around obvious graft and corruption? But they're writing a story, so they have to, you know, they have to use academic language. And the report details what's considered disparate and harmful impacts of the fossil fuel projects on black, indigenous, which would be Native Americans, and impoverished communities. And what I would consider to be what I call part of the new Jim Crow 2.0. There's no other way to put it. Now, the report also offers some practical solutions. Okay, and there's a quote from the other author, which is, let me look at this again. I'm sorry, Basav Sen. And Basav Sen was quoted as saying, quote, the nexus between the fossil fuel industry and state elected officials is a prime example of the system of legal corruption that prevails at all levels of government in the U.S., and results in laws that criminalize protests against corporate abuses, okay? Basically the same thing. In a very polite way, Sen is basically, both the authors are saying that there is not just collusion, but most likely conspiracy between elected officials and these corporate lobbyists and the corp- armies of corporate attorneys to protect them to write laws that only exist to basically put the fossil fuel industry above the law and then to criminalize at a felony level anyone who dares to use their constitutional rights to either commit acts of civil disobedience or even ask a question. And this has to stop. You know, my mind goes to the uh, granny in Times Square that was protesting the Iraq war and she just sat down in front of the local ROTC office and she was arrested. Apparently, NYPD thought practically a 90-year-old woman that maybe weighed 90 pounds stopping wet was just too much of a danger. I know I'm being facetious, 
when I see this type of abuse of law, I, I just, I want to scream. So the key findings of this report, they found that 13 states have passed laws criminalizing protests against specifically oil and gas projects since 2017. Okay, when you pass a law, when you write a law, it cannot just protect a single entity or a single industry. It has to be equal justice. But this isn't, this is specific. The other finding is that all the anti-protest bills that were introduced in the three states that are featured in this report, uh, namely Louisiana, Minnesota, and West Virginia, those anti-protest bills have been authored or sponsored by one or several legislators who have taken in large campaign contributions from oil and gas companies. And the dollar amounts, and who gets the money, and the companies that, do, that are basically paying these legislators off, that's all listed in this report. Isn't that lovely? Another finding was that 27% of black residents living in what they call census tracts along the Bayou Bridge Pipeline in Louisiana live in poverty. That's twice the national rate. <clears throat> Excuse me. They found that 37% of the indigenous population, that's Native Americans, again, they reside in census tracts along Line 3 Minnesota Pipeline, live below the poverty line, and that's more than three times the national poverty rate. The combined census tracts and the Mountain Valley Pipeline's path, which would be West Virginia, that cuts through rural Appalachian communities, has a 15% average poverty rate, and that's approximately 25% higher than the national poverty rate. <clears throat> Sorry, people, it's allergy season again. The policy recommendations, they want to introduce a protest bill of rights that would counter existing or any future critical infrastructure protection laws, and that this protest bill of rights would decriminalize civil disobedience, and it would also hold law enforcement, in other words, police accountable for any abuse or misconduct against protesters. To me, and that's a great idea, but it sounds a lot like just enforce the Bill of Rights. But they have to make it more specific because the conservatives get away with a lot just by being vague. Another policy recommendation, they want to require a national environmental justice assessment. And that would evaluate how specific fossil fuel extraction projects could impact the health, cultural resources, and the livelihood of surrounding communities. They want to ban the appointment or hiring of former industry lobbyists at any government agencies that regulate those same industries. Well, yeah. And they want to create a matching funds, I'm sorry, matching public funds program. And what that would do is level the playing fields for grassroots candidates and prevent what they call corporate capture of state campaign financing. So this report, Muzzling Dissent, really does expose the money trail between corporate lobbyists, elected officials, anti-protest laws, and yes, the, the armies of corporate attorneys that protect these lobbyists and these officials. And it exposes the money trail and it, that targets community members and advocates who are opposing these fossil fuel projects. And again, the case study analysis, three pipelines, three different states, and that's to really illustrate the harm these projects inflict on communities of color 
and low-income communities. Um, and the policy recommendations, again, it's to reinforce the rights of peaceable protesters. All right, we should not be writing any laws that specifically protect one industry or even one company. And again, the name of this study, okay, is Muzzling Dissent. All right. So this is something that muzzling dissent, how corporate influence over politics has fueled anti-protest laws by Basaf Sen and Gabrielle Colchette. That's the study. So let's go on a little further now. So from the same authors of the muzzling dissent um, study, um, we had another article written by Basaf Sen, one of the authors, entitled Paying Politicians to Criminalize Protests. Wow, that says it all right there paying politicians to criminalize protests. Uh, keep in mind, there was a case of a woman who was uh, face, facing criminal charges because she camped out in a tree they wanted to cut down. That's it. You have the Kings, uh, the Kings Bay Plowshares group, who, again, somehow very easily were able to get into a naval base where there are nuclear submarines, and the, the, the security was so lax or non-existent, and they, um, they took bottles of their own blood and squirted it on the, you know, on the pavement. They put up some signs, and they all faced criminal charges, and they all went to jail. That's what we're dealing with here. The fact that maybe you live near a fossil fuel uh, mine and your child develops a cancer they shouldn't can't develop and it's directly traceable to coal ash or whatever that doesn't matter apparently so paying politicians to criminalize protest this was in December so the author goes into how a few years ago there were huge protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock I had friends that went out to Standing Rock and you know, basically, these pipelines are dangerous. And instead of dealing with making this better, because these fossil fuel industries, they want every penny, okay? They're just that greedy, in my opinion. Um, they attack these peaceful protesters with everything they have. And these, these what they call water protectors, a lot of them are kids and elderly, they received what can only be called a violent law enforcement response, and this was reported by the ACLU. They were um, blasted with water cannons in freezing cold temperatures. They had to face down armed police and military vehicles, but that wasn't enough, okay? Just the police violently bullying protesters, again, a lot of elderly people and and skinny teenagers, now the industry wants to criminalize anti-fossil fuel protests totally. They push new laws that turn what can only be called routine acts of civil disobedience into serious felonies. And who is one of the forces behind it? Our old friends at ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. They have helped pass such laws in 13 states. And both Sen and Colchette studied these anti-protest laws uh, in their muzzling dissent report. And 
Again, these bills were introduced multiple times. One even passed the legislature, vetoed by the governor. Uh, you know, again, we're going to go over what some of these are. In Louisiana, the lead sponsor of the anti-protest bill received $6,600 from oil and gas interest. In West Virginia, the lead sponsor of the anti-protest bill received what are considered substantial contributions from Dominion Energy, and that's as reported by followthemoney.org. And Dominion owns the failed Atlantic Coast Pipeline Project. All three states in the report in the report case studies criminally dump on marginalized, in other words, minority communities. Black communities in the Bio Ridge uh, Pipeline, Louisiana, they have a poverty rate twice the national average, and we go on and on and on. In Louisiana, majority black communities, on, again, at the end of Bio Ridge Pipeline, um, live in an area that's referred to as the Cancer Alley area, and that is reported to otherwords.org and some others. So what's really behind this? Corporate interest fund, they bankroll these elected officials that are willing to whore themselves, okay, to write laws that they know are unconstitutional. They don't care, all right? This is about criminalizing constitutionally protected dissent. This is how we really descend into true fascism. You know, people talk about fascism and they think automatically of the Nazis, which is part of it. But the Nazi regime was fascist in part because it was a government of military and police and corporate interest. And that's where we're descending to now. We need to stop this immediately. So how do we reverse not only these unjust laws, but also what can only be called systemic inequalities? that allow these injustices to perpetuate themselves. Well, one's that protester's bill of rights that he's talking about, okay? Basically, we need to clean up systemic corruption. We know this, all right? But we need to have, this is my idea, we need to have, we need to elect attorney, state attorney generals that are going to go after these legislators and these corporate entities and these corporate attorneys and lobbyists that are pushing what can only be called illegitimate, unconstitutional, and corrupt laws. But this isn't just here in the U.S. Worldwide, this type of corruption continues unabated. And yes, a lot of it does come from the fossil fuel industry. Um, there was a piece, again, another article written by Basav Sen, the Muslim, one of the Muslim dissent authors, and originally it was in Foreign Policy and Focus. And the headline is, Dig Beneath the World's Far-Right Governments, You'll Find Fossil Fuels. Okay? And they talk about Brazil and India and the United States and how these extractive industries, the extractive meaning, these are fossil fuel industries, they extract, whether it's oil, gas, coal, whatever. And they've aligned themselves with authoritarian governments. All right? And they use racism to keep them, you know, who isn't, basically who's in the favored majority, pretty much silent. So, you know, and Sen talks about the fact that these far-right movements, whether it's in India, whether it is in Brazil or here in the U.S., they share a few core tendencies. One, they attack minority populations. Two, they criminalize dissent. And three, they're destroying the planet. Those are three very important points. Okay? It's not by accident. And so the author draws parallels between the U.S. and Brazil. 
RA President Bolsonaro, he is pushing really what can only be called an accelerated destruction of the Amazon while attacking indigenous Brazilians. And why? Because it helps out corporate interests that are profiteering from the destruction of the Amazon. Okay? And then they also talk about uh, an international parallel in Houston, Texas, where Indian Prime Minister Modi shared the stage with Trump. This must have been 2020. Um, And the author says, quote, at an event that felt like a fascist rally, end quote. And that's according to The Intercept. And the article was, Howdy, Modi, Trump, Hindu Nationalism. So, you don't use the term fascist lightly, but the BJP, which is the main part, the domineering party in India, they have a much older group within them. I cannot pronounce this. Rush Triva Swamyam Sevak Sang, RSS, okay? And this is a connection that the BJP party does not deny. Modi himself is a longtime RSS member, according to NPR.org. Early RSS ideologues were took inspiration from European fascism. B.S. Mooney is a mentor of RSS founder K.B. Hedgewar, and they visited Italy. They met with Mussolini. They toured some fascist youth indoctrination camps, and they were inspired to create an Indian version of those camps through the RSS. M.S. Golwakar, who was an early RSS leader, According to uh, Sakwa.net, anyway, openly praised Nazism in the writings. Okay, uh, Golwalkar wanted to create a Hindu nationalist India based on ethno-nationalist militaristic ideals. Okay, and Golwalkar never apologized or retracted any of those views. The RSS waited 67 years to publicly repudiate those views, but you wait that long, the repudiation is worthless. It's just hypocrisy. Um, you can only look, you don't have to look any further than the violent ethno-nationalism um, that are, that's going on in India right now, where Muslims are viewed as, the, as an enemy of India. Muslims have been the main target of the Modi government's uh, repressive tactics. All right. Uh, and the best known example of the BJP's government's attacks on Muslims is really this decades-long conflict in Muslim-majority Kashmir, okay? Now, there's Article 370 of the Indian Constitution. It allowed some autonomy for Jammu and Kashmir. And Article 35A, which was part of 370, restricted, quote, restricted acquisition of land by the state, in the state by persons from outside of it, end quote, but this past August, the Modi government scrapped Article 370, and it's clear that the Modi government has no intention of, you know, honoring that earlier law at all. And again, this deals with the similarities, because all three places, whether it's Brazil, India, or here in the U.S., are dealing with extractive in- industries. And the obvious parallels are here. You don't have to look any further to the concentration camps that Trump set up for migrants and migrant children, you know, babies in cages. And the Biden administration has not corrected that yet. All right. Vice President Kamala Harris called out a specific camp 
um, the homestead camp. And now what they're doing is instead of ending it, instead of ending this private prison for, for private for profit for profit prison industry, they're basically going to reinstitute it. And the homestead camp is sitting on top of toxic waste, including lead, which is dangerous to children. You know, once again, it's time for, you know, you can't criticize one side of the political fence and then ignore the other side when they do, when they commit the same, the same misstep, the same crime, if you will. And it's time for the Democrats to basically not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Those concentration camps for migrants, especially migrant children, need to end, and they need to end now. They need to end yesterday. And I, I don't care what the excuse is. And I know I'm kind of going off script right now, but, you know, a lot of the migrant babies that we have in the U.S. right now, they have sponsors that are either family members that are citizens here or friends, family friends. And those babies need to be put in sponsors' families or in very strictly um, supervised foster families. They do not need to be in a jail, period. That's child abuse. And shame on Vice President Harris for not sticking to her, you know, her ideals. Put those babies in families and put them with their, their sponsors. Do not put them in another concentration camp. Okay, so I diverted. I'm sorry. Kind of got me upset there. So once again... We're looking at the fossil fuel industry. They've used elected government, put bluntly, as their mafia capos, their enforcers. Okay? Um, and this has to stop. So the fossil fuel industry and other big corporate entities, no surprise here, besides pushing and funding politicians that write these illegitimate laws that criminalize dissent, they also help fund racist police. Okay. The fact is the fossil fuel industry and the banks that, that help that helps, um, provide money for fossil fuel industry, they all prop up racist policing. And how do they do that? They do that by helping push police foundations. And you think, what's a police foundation? You know, isn't it just something that provides, you know, what, retirement for these cops? No. Police foundations have been set up to take private money, bribes, if you will, from big money interest, and with this funding, they buy enormous weaponry, whether it's an LRAD uh, tank that provides this, this, that pushes a super uh, deafening sound that can destroy your hearing permanently, whether it's buying uh, what other weapons of war, that's what police foundations do. They privately raise money, they buy weapons, equipment, and surveillance technology. And because through private sourcing, they bypass any police boards, they bypass any board of aldermen, they bypass any governmental entity at all. And the corporate actors that provide money to these, these police foundations range from Chevron to Shell to Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan's Chase. Um, a lot of execs from those big corporations 
are also serving as directors and funders of police foundations nationwide. We've talked about this on this show before. And you got to remember, police power is the muscle behind corporate power. These police foundations and the departments that accept that money, they are the new Pinkertons. Now, for those of you that are too young to understand what a Pinkerton is, during the golden age, where basically poverty was enormous, you know, the age of Upton Sinclair, where you know you couldn't buy meat that was safe, and um, basically there were no consumer protections, no worker protections, nothing, in the age of child workers and so on. Those policies, whether it was child labor, slave labor, whatever, virtual slave labor, they were backed up, and unions were prevented from organizing by a bunch of thugs called Pinkertons. The Pinkerton agency acted as muscle for big money. And whenever groups of women, child workers, whatever, whenever they tried to unionize so that they didn't have to risk their lives just going to work, the Pinkertons were there to basically not only maim them, but in a lot of instances murder a lot of union uh, activists. And they got away with it. And I'm saying right now, these police foundations, they are the new Pinkertons. Make no mistake about it. So these police foundations, they take money from fossil fuel companies, utilities, banks to fund them, and they are big political players. You know, have you ever noticed that when you're in a state that wants to push right to work and is anti-union, you notice the one union they never go against? The police union. Ever wondered why? This is why. Okay. In many states, these companies go, they, they back laws that criminalize, as I said before, protests of dirty energy projects. Um, they openly weaponize the police and the criminal justice system to protect the fossil fuel industry and the banks that bankroll them. And the fact is, with, with all this collusion going on, this itself should have been enough to permanently disbar every corporate attorney connected with this illegal power grab but it didn't happen, okay? And you've got companies like Marathon Petroleum in Detroit, Valero and Corpus Christi, Shell in Louisiana. They're the same ones. Besides being dirty energy that's poisoning those communities and dumping toxic, they're the same ones that prop up these police forces through these police foundations. This is why divestment from fossil fuels and fighting to end environmental racism goes hand in hand with defunding the police and the fight for racial justice and reinvestment in communities of color. You can't separate the two because what we have here is a fait accompli. You have big money in the fossil fuel industry and big banks that help support them that basically with corporate attorneys push either one, slap suits, so people are too afraid to even complain for fear of losing everything they have in a civil lawsuit that's really just a nuisance lawsuit that's no merit at all. Or two, they back laws that criminalize constitutionally protected dissent. And then three, they put money into these police foundations and these police foundations through their private money by weapons of war that they're not even avail that aren't even made available through the 1033 program. 
and they don't have to report to any police board, any municipality, nothing. This is all basically in the dark. All right, it's a secret budget, if you will. And then through those police foundations, these police departments, yes, they are the Pinkertons, the modern Pinkertons sustaining this new Jim Crow 2.0, period. And then when you live in a right-to-work state, again, the one union they never attack is the police union. And that's why. And does the police union back any other unions? No. They're the thugs sent to arrest teachers, for instance, that are just trying to get a 30-minute lunch break. Okay? So who are these big oil backers of police foundations? Well, I mentioned them. Chevron's one. Okay? Um, Chevron is a top polluter. They own two of the top six benzene-emitting refineries in the U.S. Benzene is a proven carcinogen. No guesswork here. Okay. Um, Chevron has also, quote, used their phrase, a corporate partner of the police, end quote. They're also the sponsor of the New Orleans Police and Justice Foundation. They're a board member of the Houston Police Foundation and a sponsor of the Houston Police Department's Mounted Patrol. That's nice. Marathon Petroleum the U.S.'s largest oil refining company. They have a long record of environmental pollution that really disproportionately impacts communities of color because that's where the refineries are. Since 2000, Marathon has been fined over 1.4 billion, with a B, in fines for an assortment of environmental, consumer, and workplace violations. Marathon operates 16 refineries in the U.S., including, according to this, their phrase, a notorious 250-acre refinery, as reported by The Guardian. And that's in a Detroit, Michigan. It's in Detroit, okay? And, you know, Detroit's 71% black. No, no surprise there, okay? Um since 2013, Marathon's Detroit refinery has received 15 violations um, from the state environmental regulator because they went past the emission limits for both the state and the federal levels. In 2019, the refinery leaked what was called a gas oil mixture, and it created this toxic vapor cloud, and workers were sent immediately to the hospital. Marathon Security Coordinator. Oh, isn't that a lovely title? Happens to sit on the board of the Detroit Public Safety Foundation, which is, again, another police foundation. Marathon's listed as a commanding sponsor of the foundation's fundraising event above and beyond. Okay? Shell, one of the largest fossil fuel companies in the world, major global emitter of carbon pollution. It's building a huge, what they call, ethane cracker plant near Pittsburgh. Um, and some people are thinking that it's going to turn Appalachian to the next cancer alley. And that was, again, reported by The Guardian. Um, Shell's a major polluter, and so Shell's also a featured partner of the New Orleans Police and Justice Foundation and a sponsor of the Houston Police Department's Mounted Patrol. Valero, second biggest oil refining company in the U.S., Corpus Christi East Refinery is part of the city's refinery row. 
And again, these refineries sit near neighborhoods that are dominantly, predominantly black and brown. And it is considered a what's called a top emitter of benzene, according to EchoWatch.com. Again, I keep emphasizing benzene is a proven carcinogen. No guesswork here. Period. Well, they're also the board seat on the Corpus Christi Police Foundation's Board of Directors. And it's a sponsor, again, of the Houston Police Department's Mounted Patrol. Wow, there's a lot of stuff going on in Houston. Hillcourt. Headquarters in Houston. Who knew? One of the largest privately held oil drillers in the country. Um, they're really known for buying older oil and gas fields from other producers, and then they try and get what's left out of there. Um, they also are known for, for basically an enormous amount of environmental violations. From 2012 to 2015, Hillcore's Alaska operation received 25 documented violations, according to InsightClimateNews.org, uh, including allowing a gas pipeline on the seafloor to leak methane instead of stopping production and making the repair. Okay? They didn't want to stop production and lose a few pennies to do what they were supposed to do, so they said, oh, fine to leak methane into the ocean. Um, in Ohio, hill course drilling practices, according to the Post-Gazette, um, were attributed to does, attributed as a cause for dozens of earthquakes. Okay? And in Louisiana, they had several oil spills, destroyed oyster beds. Hillcore's billionaire co-founder and chairman, Jeff Hildebrand, has a board seat on the Houston Police Foundation. Surprise, surprise. It goes on and on and on. Detroit Edison, Exelon, coming out of Chicago, Entergy, Georgia Power, Duke Energy, they all have not only polluted and are in, involved in the extractive industry, but they are also in, intimately involved in police foundation. Okay, there's no guesswork there. Uh, then there's the banks, fossil fuel financiers, J.P. Morgan Chase, top global financier, of fossil fuels, okay? Um, they put over a quarter trillion with a T dollars towards oil, gas, and coal between 2016 and 2019, and that was according to the 2020 Banking on Fossil Fuels report. Um, former ExxonMobil CEO and Chairman Lee Raymond, a long record of climate denialism, according to Inside Climate News, served on the board of J.P. Morgan Chase, okay? J.P. Morgan Chase has served as a sponsor, a corporate partner of police, officially of the New Orleans Police and Justice Foundation. And that foundation, they use their money, corporate money that they get to fund surveillance technology, recruitment, and all that good stuff. Wells Fargo also is connected. Bank of America. We can just keep going on. BlackRock. There's not enough time in this hour to go over all of it. So let's just get to the cut to the chase here. Jen Armstrong and Derek Seidman wrote a, a report. Uh, this is from the Little Sis Foundation um, in June of 2020 titled Corporate Backers of the Blue, How Corporations Bankroll U.S. Police Foundations. So why are these police foundations so dangerous? Well, according to multiple records, they can purchase weapons and other equipment with zero transparency or accountability to the public. 
When I mean weapons, I mean military grade. Okay. These corporate sponsorships of police foundations establish and maintain various, excuse me, the various, the various recipient police departments like corporate mafioso, like capos or enforcers. And who do the police in these departments report to? Not the public. These police foundations and the police that are involved, they are the loyal attack dogs of corporate, and they're not going to bite the feet the hand that feeds them. Police foundations all across the U.S. are partnering with these corporations. And again, this is basically a second set of books. All right? These police foundations, because they get private money, they can purchase equipment, any kind of weapon they want, with either little public input or oversight or none. All right? And police departments already have enormous budgets. Okay, a lot of police departments average between 20% and 45% of a municipal budget. And that's going to populardemocracy.org. Okay. Um, you know, and this is something that this shouldn't be a secret. The Philadelphia, excuse me, the Philadelphia Police Foundation bought long guns, drones, and ballistic helmets. The Atlantic Police Department, Police Foundation, excuse me, uh, helped to fund a major surveillance network of over 12,000 cameras. L.A., the police used foundation funding to purchase very controversial surveillance software from Palantir, and that is according to MinnesotaPost.com and ProPublica. Now, if the Los Angeles Police Department had purchased this technology through its regular budget, it would have had been required to hold public meetings and gain approval from the city council. The public would have had to have been informed. But because these foundations are this, this nonsensical public-private structure, they don't have to report to anybody. See, police foundations really are a key space. And this is there to quote this. This is a quote from the article. Are a key space for orchestrating, normalizing, and celebrating the collaboration between corporate power and the police. And it's true. It just is. Retail and food industries are involved. Silicon Valley is, Amazon, Motorola, Verizon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft. And it goes on and on and on. Even sports. In Detroit, the NFL's Lions, the NBA's Pistons, and the MLB's Tigers all have a representative on the public Detroit Public Safety Foundation Board of Trustees. Okay. Um, let's see now. The Director for Security of the MLB Seattle Mariners sits on the board of the Seattle Police Foundation, and the Mariners and the Seattle Seahawks donate to the foundation. So basically, what you have are these very wealthy entities that are paying extra for preferential treatment. That's a recipe for corruption. This is not what it's supposed to be. So this is, you, you see the intersectionality. It, it, it's kind of loosey-goosey, but it, it's, there's so much corruption you can't cover it all. And there is a group besides Little Sis, the Action Center for Race and Economy. And they have a series of webinars that allow you to research police budgets, police foundations, and other aspects. Um, 
keep in mind, when you have big money powers that are contributing money to police foundations, how is that? The fine line between that and basically bribing police for preferential treatment. Okay, it's certainly not anything that looks legitimate. And so once again, you have this triad going on that is killing any sense of environmental justice. And again, tonight's been specifically about fossil fuel extraction industries, but it could be anything. On the one hand, you have hordes of corporate lawyers that did what they did like to Maggie Herchala with slap suits, which are basically lawsuits that have basically no merit. But what they do is you've got the power of a corporation and the billions of dollars against a small group or an individual, and they know they're going to win, not because they have, not because the facts of the case have any merit, but because they can just wait off the clock until the person that's been slap sued goes broke. That's their first weapon. Number two, you have legislative bodies through, with help from the American Legislative Exchange Council that are basically writing laws that are unconstitutional and illegitimate that criminalize constitutionally protected rights, all right, that are basically destroying the right to free speech, the right to freedom of assembly, the right to petition your government for redress of grievances, and so on and so forth. And when I say criminalize, things that should be considered as just misdemeanor uh, civil disobedience has been turned into serious felonies demanding, you know, several years of prison time. And there's nothing legitimate about that. And then finally, you have the, the enforcers, the police through their police foundations, where basically big corporate and big banks give money to help out the police, but, you know, basically it's they're paying extra money to get preferential treatment, and they've reduced policing to acting as private security guards or really Pinkertons that serve for corporate against all the rest of us. And that's the perfect triad you have. And that's why, to borrow from an earlier phrase, quote, divesting from fossil fuels and fighting to end environmental racism goes hand in hand with defunding the police and the fight for racial justice and reinvestment in black and brown communities, end quote. And the numbers are certainly there. There's no guesswork here. We have to change this. And now, just a few minutes still, and you know, we have this little segment, which is, we call it either the environmental hero, zero, or villains. And this week, we have an environmental hero, Congresswoman Katie Porter. And it was reported from, I took the report from the Hill, but it was all over the media. Representative Katie Porter, who's from California, she really trimmed the ears of an oil company executive who was trying to claim that tax breaks for the industry, for the um, fossil fuel industry, really just don't exist. They're not significant. Now, Katie Porter's an attorney, okay, and she's a law school professor. But this exec thought he saw a woman, and he thought he could just basically play this little game. And Congresswoman Porter responded beautifully, and I'm just going to read what she said. Quote, please don't patronize me by telling me that the oil and gas industry doesn't have any special tax provisions. 
But if you would like that to be the rule, I would be happy to have Congress deliver, end quote. Love it. And then she told that to Mark Murphy, who was the, pres- the president of Strata Production Company, and that was in a subcommittee hearing um, just two days ago. So for that, I say Congresswoman Katie Porter is our environmental hero. Wish we had more like her. And um, we're going to be talking about this more and more, all right? If you notice, a lot of these issues really do dovetail into other issues. You almost can't divide them anymore. And, you know, and what you have to remember is that I have maintained from the very beginning that communities of color, especially the black community, is the political canary in the coal mine in the U.S., and to give you, again, a little refresher, the phrase about a canary in a coal mine being an early warning system refers to a practice by coal miners, you know, what, 100 years ago? And they wouldn't know if the next part of the mine contained oxygen or not. So they would take a canary in an open cage, lower him down, and then bring him back up. If the canary survived, they knew there was oxygen. If the canary died, They knew they couldn't go any further. The black community in particular is the political canary in the coal mine in the United States. And I guarantee you, first of all, it's a matter of morality. We should care what happens to our black brothers and sisters, period. We should all be anti-racist. There's no question there at all. We also need to be smart and realize the black community is usually afflicted the worst, and they're the first ones to be attacked. But eventually, it's going to come back to us. So if you don't care about morality, at least care about self-interest. And that being said, though, the morality is the dominant argument, though. Our black brothers and sisters and our brown and tan brothers and sisters are just that. Our brothers and sisters. You cannot call yourself a decent person if you turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the evil of racism. You cannot call yourself a kind or a decent person if you're not anti-racist and actively so. You cannot call yourself a decent and kind person if you're not willing to stand up to the racist in our ranks, period. There are no exceptions. And with that, I end this show. Be talking to all of you next week. All right, on whoops, on the Environmental Justice Report. Um, having a few technical difficulties here. Um, but once again, we will be back next week talking about another another item. And uh, you know, to those of you that are fighting the good fight. God bless.